Welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Before we get rolling into this episode, I just a few housekeeping things. In case you're a fan of the podcast and you want to support it, you can now buy merchandise on the website. And on there we have t-shirts, hoodies, zip-ups, caps. And yeah, I think you can actually go to the store through Facebook, Instagram, and on the website. So there's lots and lots of options there. You can also sign up as a Patreon. And on that note, I would just like to thank the two newest patrons that are supporting the podcast. One of those is my longtime friend, Jeff Phillips, who is uh, recently getting into bikepacking and he's been asking me lots of questions for last year or so. And and um, now he started listening to the podcast and he said, hey, man, I want to support you. So thank you, Jeff. And the next one is Tom Com or Tom K-O-M. But Tom, thank you so much for signing up as well. I really do appreciate it. And for everybody else out there, for just a few bucks a month, you can support the podcast and help cover the costs and fees and, and gear. So that would be really, really cool and appreciated. You can do that through www.patreon.com slash bike tour adventures. I'd also like to thank Mark Royden for the one-time donation through PayPal. So that is another option. If you're not really down with like an every month type thing, because you just never know how one month will be compared to the next. But if you're like, hey, I've got a few extra bucks this month and I'd love to help the podcast, you can do that through PayPal. I would just Google search Bike Tour Adventures and PayPal. It's much easier than trying to uh, spout out a uh, URL for that. So guys, thank you for helping to keep this show going. And anybody else out there that wants to help support, we love you. Next up, Bike Pack Adventures. So the website is getting better and better. I'm loving it. I think it's something like 35 or 6 routes in Ontario and Quebec now. And there's more coming. So that's really, really cool. And I've had a few submissions now. So that is really, really nice as well. It's nice to see that people are thinking, hey, I can share my routes to there through this website. And I'm actually taking the information and putting in. So it's not just a link. To somebody else's page because not everybody has a page and I'd like to have some uniformity. So by submitting a route, you know that it'll look like everyone else's and there'll be links that feed to your page and your ride with GPS or Kamut. Next is the Grand Depart. So I have created some routes here in Quebec and this summer will be the inaugural Grand Depart and that's happening on July 3rd, departing Chelsea, Quebec at 8 a.m. And if you haven't signed up yet, there's three distances you can choose from. So there's a, it's a little bit of an adventure for everyone, regardless of your ability or even time, because not everybody has lots of time to get out bikepacking. So they are the Canadian Shield 400, 1000 and 1300. For details, go to www.bikepackadventures.ca. And check out the Grand Depart. Lastly, before the interview with Ryan Van Duzer, I want to thank the companies that support the podcast and for seeing the value in what I'm doing. So I'm really stoked about this next interview. It's somebody that several people have reached out and said, hey, man, you should interview Ryan Van Duzer. And I was like, I know he's on my list. And we just had to make it a time and to make it happen. And it happened. So everybody, I'm really, really stoked about this interview. And I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, man, it's good to good to actually finally meet you. I've uh, followed you for a while and first heard about you from uh, Adam Hugo. Oh, right on. Yeah, my favorite British bikepacking buddy. <laughs> yeah, and I heard he actually visited you in uh, Boulder, too, for uh, right at the end of his trip kind of thing, huh? Yeah, he came through town and we got to hang out for a morning. Yeah, yeah that's wild. In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, I sit down with Ryan Van Duzer. Ryan, 
better known as Doozer, has been creating video for over 15 years now, having established himself as an adventurer that shows, you know, not just the highs, but also the lows of any adventure he's on. Now with, oh man, 141,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel, Doozer TV, and his motto, get out there, Ryan's on a quest to motivate people to get off their couch and get active, no matter whether it's a, a micro adventure or a massive odyssey. So Ryan, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Thank you. That was an awesome intro. I appreciate it. And uh, before we get started, I believe there are six words that start every single good day on a bike for you. So uh, shall we? No crashies, no, no fatties, no, no whammies. No whammies. <laughs> I think I said no fatties instead of flatties. Oops. <laughs> we can, it can be whatever you want. You can, it can be fatties. It can be crashies. It can be windies. It can be anything. Damn. So, um... Are you in Boulder, Boulder right now? Yeah, I'm in Boulder right now, hanging out at home. Nice, nice. Okay. And um, so, yeah, tell us about yourself. I think you're born and raised there, right? Yep. Born and raised in Boulder, Colorado. Very fortunate to be born and raised in such a cool, outdoorsy, beautiful mountain town. You know, I feel every day I wake up, I see the same mountains I've seen all my life, and I still feel just full of gratitude because they're so beautiful. And, uh, you know, I love traveling. I love seeing the world. I love meeting new people and learning new languages. But Boulder will always be home. And it's a great place to come back to. It does seem like I mean, I've never been there. And um, but I mean, you do. It does come up a lot in, you know, discussions about cycling and in general outdoors stuff in the U.S., you know, like Utah and Boulder and Colorado kind of like all the time. Yeah. Boulder is a, a very outdoorsy city. I mean, people come here from all over the country and the world specifically to have access to the great outdoors and beautiful weather. You know, we, we do get four seasons. We do get mm -hmm. snow, but uh, we also have 300 days of sunshine a year. Oh, so wow. even if it does snow and it's cold, it's sunny the next day. And, you know, you have access to mountain biking and road biking and kayaking and climbing and, you know, anything you want yeah. to do outside. And is it is it kind of colder in the winter or is uh, I mean, because you, you guys are up in the mountains, right? We're not like technically up in the mountains. Okay. We're right at the foothills. OK. But yeah, it gets cold. We get snow. I mean, it goes below freezing sometimes. But, I, you know, it's a <laughs> fairly <forbid>. mild <laughs> climate. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Because I mean, like here in the Ottawa Valley area, we are, you know. I mean, I woke up this morning. It was a beautiful, balmy minus six so Celsius, oh, which is, I don't know, probably around 20 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit. And that was a great morning. I was like, oh, I'm going for a run. I took the dog out and we did like, not not a huge run. I'm not a huge runner like you, but like three and a half K just to get her out before this interview. And then I'll take her for another bigger, longer jaunt later. But, you know, and, and earlier in this winter was minus 32 in the mornings. So, <laughs> which is almost probably around minus 32. <laughs> Yeah, when I think of Canada in the winter, I just think the, the entire country is frozen over. It feels like that. I think it's um the West yeah. Coast is is you know well you've been to Vancouver so that's where it's yeah. nice you know you you don't you you get that night well it's rainy but um you don't have a cold cold winter so yeah yeah and the Okanagan Valley where um Leah Goldstein is from is pretty mm -hmm. nice when you're down in the valley so yeah that's cool. Did you grow up in a an adventurous family? Not really at all. You know, um, it wasn't like my parents influenced my outdoor exploration in any way. You know, they would get out a little bit, but not not anything big. I just grew up in a town where 
there were these outdoor options. You know, a lot of times in the United States, you live in small town America, you play the typical sports, baseball, basketball, or football. But in Boulder, because we have access to the great outdoors, you know, kids are exposed to different stuff. And so we start mountain biking early and doing stuff that kids around the United States probably don't do. And, uh, you know, I was just influenced really by a a community of uh, people that just get after it all the time. That get out there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, get out there. Yeah, I I live uh, just north of Ottawa, so it's in the... Gatineau Hills. I mean, it's about the biggest hills in this close to the city, but it's it's kind of the same thing. It's your very small town of 10,000 and really outdoorsy people, you know, cross country skiing and snowshoeing and biking and hiking. And that's just life here. So that's why I moved here. But it's, uh, it's definitely not big like Boulder. That's for sure. Yeah. You started off as a runner. Is that right? You're, it's kind of like been your yeah, first passion. Totally. I started off running at a very early age, like five, six years old. There's a big running community in Boulder, not just trail running, but road racing. And some of the the best elites in the world come to Boulder, even back when I was a kid, to come here to train because it's high altitude. It has a great community of runners. There's lots of races. And so I was influenced by legendary runners like Frank Shorter, the first American man to ever win a gold medal in the Olympics and the marathon. And, um, you know, other runners in, in this area. And yeah, I wanted to be a runner. I was fast. And in elementary school, I, we would do like the, the mile races and I was I always the fastest one. And I loved com- competing and I loved beating everybody. And I loved, you know, moving my body quickly. And I, you know, I had dreams of, you know, going to the Olympics and, and stuff like that. So I really took oh, running wow. seriously as a, as a young guy. And, uh, I still do. I still run all the time. Yeah. I think I saw you did the, was it a hundred mile race this last year? Was yeah. I did the Leadville 100, Leadville. which is a pretty well-known yeah. ultra marathon back in August. And I've done a few other hundred milers and 50 milers and all sorts of fun stuff. That's wild. I guess, I don't know. I'd say, oh, lucky you haven't like destroyed your knees, but I think that's also, you know, it's all about how you take care of yourself and whether you're overtraining or pushing too hard on the event and, you know, not following your own plan, right? Yeah. And I'm a chronic under trainer. (laughs) I go into a lot of these races, not having a lot of miles under my belt, you know, the kind of miles you need to run a hundred mile race, you know, I had just done the Colorado trail right before Leadville last year. So I bike a lot and it sometimes works as a crossover okay. into running, but I should run more. <laughs> yeah, I've done one marathon and uh, I didn't run more than 10K training for it, which might have been a bad mistake in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I really shit faced two nights before it, uh, which was also a bad idea because I was hung over the entire day before. But I finished. It took me five hours, but I managed it. Uh, it was it wasn't good. <laughs> good work. I, I'm a I'm a big believer in that pretty much anybody can just do a marathon off the couch. Problem is, if you don't train, your body really suffers afterwards. Yeah. Oh man, trying going out off a walk off a curb, you know, the day mm-hmm. after. Oh, brutal. <laughs> Have you always been into cycling or is this something that came around like later in life? Yeah, you know, bikes and running for sure. So running I was always competitive yep. at. Cycling for me was just fun. It was a way to get around town and hang out with my friends and I, you know, mountain biking really is my first love. You know, we have all sorts of great trails here. So, you know, I bought my first bike when I was, let's see, about 13, 14 years old. I saved up all my lawn mowing money 
bought a Trek 8000. Oh, yeah. And that bike was my freedom machine, and I would ride it all over the place. And just like we all know, everybody listening to this podcast, we know what it feels like to be on a bike, oh, how yeah. good it feels, and the freedom, and the wind in your hair, and just exploring in nature. And even if you've ridden the same trail a 100 times, it still feels awesome. Yeah. And it's hard to explain it to somebody who doesn't do it. You're like, come on, man, you just got to try. Go for it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be gnarly or hard. And, you know, just take your time. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I think it all started for you with post uh, Peace Corps, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell people what the Peace Corps is? Like, I actually know and I'm Canadian, which is probably unusual. But uh, <laughs> for those that don't. So, OK, so the Peace Corps was started by JFK in 1961 as a way to send young Americans essentially around the world to developing countries to do development work. And I think every country has something like this. And there's all sorts of different projects from water engineering projects to small business development projects. I worked in youth development. So I worked with kids and in and out of schools. And I had worked a lot with Mexican immigrant youth before deciding to go to Honduras for two and a half years. So the Peace Corps, Peace Corps is a two year commitment. And yeah, I loved the experience. It was uh, eye opening. It was the biggest challenge of my life going from, you know, Boulder, Colorado, this very, you know, beautiful, privileged (laughs) town (laughs) to a, a small village. In Honduras, up in the high mountains on the border of El Salvador was quite an eye-opening experience mm-hmm. to see how most people on this planet live. And it's, it's, a much, it's much different. It was eye-opening. So, yeah, I did that for two, two years. Loved the experience. Really, you know, developed a strong bond with the people in my community. And I thought that flying home after two years would be too fast. Right. I didn't want to just jump on a plane and get home in a matter of five hours, I thought that would cause some serious reverse culture shock. And I was like, you know what? I want to figure out a way to go home slower and really process what I had done for those two years and have time to dream toward the future. And I, you know, the, I thought, hey, let's do this on a bike. I want to ride my bike home to Boulder, Colorado from Honduras. Oh, nice. And uh, that was my first bike adventure ever. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never done anything like this before. And I just figured it out day by day. Nice. I uh, I first learned about Peace Corps when I uh, I lived in Russia when I was in my mid twenties. I, I thought, hey, I want to go travel and go somewhere that no normal person would go. Most people go and backpack in Europe, and I was like, I'm going to move to Russia. So I met some American mm-hmm. guys who then uh, a couple of them actually joined the Peace Corps the year after. And so I was still in Russia doing oh, a okay. master's at the time, and I would go spend my summers. Um, backpacking around uh, Ukraine with these guys and going to their villages and really interesting to uh, to get into some of the villages that, you know, these community devo- volunteers or, you know, some of them were teaching English, others were working with uh, recreation and outdoors. But to go in these communities that no typical tourist in, you know, West, uh, sorry, Eastern Ukraine would ever go because why yeah. would you go to this ex-Soviet town that has nothing, you know, like pretty interesting, pretty, uh, pretty wild what those guys are doing. And it's, it's amazing. You know, I always tell people, if you really want to get to know a country, go visit a Peace Corps volunteer Yeah, because they live in these small villages. They know everybody, they know the language and it's a, it's a great way to really get to know a place quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So leaving Honduras, you cycled back to Boulder. And what was your like, well, A, how long did it take you? And um, what was the uh, what was your bike and setup and stuff? So I um, I had a Trek 8000. Ironically enough, a Trek 8000 was the first bike I ever bought with my own money here in Boulder. But it wasn't that Trek at 8000. I met an American aid worker down there who had been there for years and he was leaving and he wanted to sell his bike. So he sold it to me for 500 bucks. It was in great shape. So I, it, and it's a mountain bike, so it's not technically really even a touring bike, but it didn't really matter. So I had a Trek 8000. I used a Bob trailer to carry my gear. I gave everything else away that I owned to the community members um, in my barrio. Yeah. And I just had one map with a that covered Central America and Mexico and the United States. And I drew it a line of where I thought would be a cool, you know, beaches here, mountains here, go this way, go that way. <laughs> and it was very rough. This was way before GPS and smartphones and all that stuff. And I just started riding and figuring it out day by day and asking people for directions constantly and safe ways to go. And truckers helped me constantly. They were so wonderful all the way through Mexico. Truckers really, they look out for people on the roads. And I was uh, really um, surprised by that. Okay. The entire adventure took three months. It was a little over 4,000 miles. So for Canadians, maybe 6,000-ish kilometers. About that, yeah. And uh, it was so exciting. I loved it. Every single day was a new adventure. I didn't know what I was going to get into or who I was going to meet or what I was going to eat or where I was going to sleep. It wasn't like now where you can go on bikepacking.com and get a route and just plug it into your GPS and have a whole, you know, list of campsites and waypoints and none of that. Life I is easy. figured out everything. <laughs> yeah. I figured out everything every day and people invited me into their homes and fed me meals and I got to see small town Mexico and places where, you know, gringos never go. And it really lit my fire for exploration. I loved it. And I've never done anything that made me feel so alive. And that is uh, that adventure in a quick little nutshell. Yeah. And, um, you know, bike packing or bike touring and just packing in general is such a finicky thing where you slowly it takes a long time to develop your your understanding of what you need and what you don't need uh mm. in that first tour would you have said you overpacked and uh what were some of the things you might have said oh, i didn't really need that oh man so the the great thing about the bob trailer is that you can hold a lot of weight but the the bad thing about the bob trailer is that you can hold a lot of weight and so i carried way too much you know, I brought like five books with me thinking I was going to read in my tent at nighttime. And, you know, I packed tons of food and things <laughs> that, you know, you, you realize that you can buy food along the way. You don't really need to pack yeah, all that yeah. much food and, you know, warm clothes and all this stuff that I didn't need. So I kept on shedding it for the first week or so to, to lighten the load. Okay. And, um, yeah. I, you know, nowadays when I go bike touring, I barely bring anything. I bring like two shirts, a pair of shorts, chamois, you know, camera equipment and a couple other little things, a shaver. <laughs> yeah. It's like one to one to wear, one to dry. And that's yeah, kind of totally. like, yeah, I guess uh, leaving the community you just spent two years in, was that the hardest part or was it, was there the excitement of touring or nervousness? Am I doing something stupid here? That kind there of thing. was a mix of everything. You know, I'd really 
fallen in love with my community and the kids that I worked with and leaving them, them was very difficult because I knew that whenever I did come back, it'd be much different. They'd be older and it would just be a different situation. And I really loved my experience there and my role as a Peace Corps volunteer in that community. And so it was hard to leave. It's hard to leave, you know, any situation after a couple of weeks. Sometimes this was two years where I really, you know, became like a like a brother in that in that small town. And so, yeah, leaving was tough, but I was also excited. You know, this was a big adventure ahead of me, something I'd never done before. It was completely unknown. I was scared, you know, which what if I got stuck on some roads with crazy traffic or yeah. broke my bike down in ways that I couldn't fix or injured my body or ridden through hurricanes or whatever it was, you know, uh, it was all that. And now that, that's kind of adventure in a nutshell is like, it's the unknown. That's why we do it. It makes us mm -hmm. feel alive. It's exciting and it's fun. And we go and we figure it out. And adventure to me is all about problem solving. Every single day, you're confronted with something. It's very rare that adventures are straight up smooth rolling, right? And so you really learn a lot about life and how to dig deep and get through situations that are uncomfortable. And that really helps you in everyday life with relationships mm -hmm. or with jobs and projects. And I'll, I'm forever grateful for that first experience. Yeah, amazing. One thing I found interesting in, uh, in the first 400 kilometers or so of that trip, You'd already gone through, you'd like left Honduras, gone through Guatemala, entered Belize. Was there a lot of difference in the people within that 400 kilometers? Or is it kind of like, is it just lines on a map really? Like, you know what I mean? That's a great question. Yeah, exactly. There's not a huge difference in the people between Honduras and Guatemala. You know, they both speak Spanish. They both look similar. The landscapes are pretty similar. But Belize is way different for sure. Belize, the, the language is, is English. It's very multicultural. Okay. There are people from East Indian descent. There's people from African descent. There's people from Mayan descent. There's Mennonite communities it's everywhere. Wild. So full on white people living in the jungles of Belize. And so that was the most eye-opening country. It's oh, a wild. fascinating place. I didn't realize about the Mennonites until I saw it in your video. And I was like, what? Yeah. It's crazy to see like... Some white dude with overalls in a buggy cruising down a road in the jungle. It just looks so out of place. Do you guys have a lot of Mennonites in the U.S. as well? Like, cause we got lots here in like Canada. Yeah, I think there are. I mean, there's none in this area. We have Amish and stuff in okay. Pennsylvania and, you know, but I not in Colorado that I know. Okay. Of, so I don't see them very often. It's probably more in the north, maybe like uh, Michigan and stuff like getting up towards along yeah, the border. It's definitely area. A northeastern thing. Pennsylvania okay. has a ton of Amish. Okay. Was it dangerous to camp at all in the jungle, like in South America? Like, not not necessarily talking about danger of people, but like you know, snakes, poisonous things. I don't know, <laughs> panthers. You know, <laughs> people ask me this a lot about dangerous creatures in the jungles, and I think I was so tired at the end of every day that I didn't even think about it. Like, mm. you know, there may have been some poisonous snakes out there, but it wasn't anything that I ever dealt with. The one thing that did happen, which was fascinating and strange and disgusting was I, I got some bot flies, uh, in my arm, which what are, are a parasite. Okay. So bot flies are, are carried by mosquitoes. So a mosquito will suck your blood and, and lay these little eggs. 
and slowly like this larva grows in your arm and this happens to animals and, and humans and I didn't know what was happening and so at first it just looked like I had some normal mosquito bites but after a month they hadn't gone away and they actually got worse and they were more infected and pussy and I was like what's going on with these mosquito bites and then one day I was sitting on a dock in Zihuatanejo, Mexico way after I had originally gotten this bot fly in Belize and I could see a little white wormy creature <laughs> sticking its head in and out of the, the hole of the middle of this mosquito bite. And of course I freaked out cause it was like an alien in my arm. And I did long story short, I did some research, figured out that they were bot flies. They aren't really harmful per se. They just kind of live in you. You know, they love a nice warm host. And then they, they leave your body. They, you know, they crawl out and do their thing. <laughs> gross. Yeah. Gross for sure. That's all, that's all in this video. Yeah. Did the fly actually come out at some point? Like he's like, I'm moving it on. It didn't come out alive. Okay. It didn't come out alive. So there were two of them and I messed with them so hard and kept poking at them that I squeezed them out and blew them up like a big zit. Oh, nice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you. So, you met up with your buddy, is his name Jeff? Is that right? Jeff, yeah. Yeah, you met up with Jeff in uh, the south of Mexico and then mm-hmm. kind of did the rest of the tour with him. Did you notice like a big difference in in how local populations interacted with you when you were alone versus traveling now with a friend? Yeah, you know, I think whenever somebody comes across a solo traveler, their initial instinct is to help them, you know? And uh, I think maybe people reached out more when it was just me, but they were, they did as well when it was just the two of us. Cause we were so different than what they're nor- used to seeing in Mexico. These two white dudes on bikes in the middle of nowhere. So people still invited us into their homes and uh, it was a very rich experience the whole way. You know, of course, before I did the adventure, everybody was like, Oh, this is so dangerous. Don't you watch the news? There's a lot of bad people in Mexico and narcos and violence and drug lords and blah, blah, blah. And I was never really worried about any of that. I would lived in Latin America long enough to know that I was going to be okay. I, you know, I speak yeah. Spanish and uh, having Jeff along with me, you know, uh, definitely made me feel safer. Okay. But we were never, ever in a compromising situation. Were there any places you avoided that just, you know, out of knowledge of a bad area or just kind of said, no, we're just going to do our route and go for it. Yeah, not really. You know, if our route was anywhere near Mexico city, I probably would have avoided Mexico city, not because it's dangerous, but more because it's just when you're on a bike tour and everybody listening can relate, like riding through a city sucks. It's just hectic and crazy and it's easy to get lost and there's way more cars and so we liked going through the small towns. They're so much easier to get through. And riding through like one of the biggest cities in the world would just really suck. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden you're on an on-ramp on a highway and there's like, you know, cars flying by you and it's just like, it gets hectic quick. And, yeah. you know, those roads are not made for, for bike travel. So uh, it's not a good scene. Yeah. I think I heard from, uh, one of my guests a while back, I'm not sure who it was anymore, but they said that when they're traveling and somebody says, Oh, be careful in whatever place, some other community, some other city, it's really dangerous. They said, we kind of ignore it, 
But when the only time we'd really listen is if somebody says, okay, in this town is very dangerous and you need to be careful. And they're like, okay, now it's like really like localized advice. They're probably not overhyping like the neighbor, you know? So Mm -hmm. I thought that was always really interesting because, I mean, I lived in Korea. You've traveled to Korea. And when I was going on holiday to China, everybody was like, all the Koreans are like, don't go to China. So dangerous. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, "Eh, you're hyping it up, you know, like it's just it's just, you know, same thing as Canadians saying, don't go to U.S., you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, well, don't go to maybe certain neighborhoods in certain big cities, but like a little bit, a little bit of foresight. I would definitely stay, stay away from Ottawa. Oh yeah. Yeah, Especially Chelsea, Quebec, just North there. (laughs) Liable to get your bike stolen. (laughs) (laughs) You use the, uh, the Trek 8000 and the Bob for quite a while, right? What kind of other adventures did you get on with it? Yeah. So that same bike that I had for two years in Honduras, I rode it home, so that was like 4,000 miles, and I rode it across the country in 2011. I rode it from Maine to Key West, and I rode it from Vancouver, Canada, all the way down to Cabo San Lucas. So I put a ton of miles on that bike, and it did fine, and it was my everyday commuter as well. It was like the one bike that I had. I used it for everything, and it finally did break. I just, I ripped the uh, frame in two, essentially, near the bottom bracket, riding up a steep hill. And uh, that was the end of my Trek 8000. Were you in Boulder at the time when it, when it broke? I was, oh, luckily. Good. I at was least, in Boulder. Yeah. <laughs> yep, riding up a hill. I have a video about it, actually. And now that bike is hanging up in my house like a museum piece. Oh, wow. All right. Before we carry on, though, um, finishing up that first tour, I just kind of skipped a few questions here. Uh, what was it like to to kind of roll back into USA and then ultimately into Boulder? So it was crazy you remember i had been away from the u.s for a little more than two years so it wasn't just the the bike tour and i'll never forget you know getting close to the border in juarez el paso texas and riding up you know most of the people crossing the border in cars of course not many people cross on bikes and riding up and the guy in the toll booth was like, what is going on, man? Why are you on a bike? And it was a big <laughs> black dude and he was super friendly and cool. And I handed him my passport and he just goes, welcome to America. Boom. And just stamped my passport. And so it was a very uh, fun way to be welcomed back home. And, you know, it was exciting to, get, to be back in the United States and, you know, have access to, you know, drinking water out of a faucet in a hotel or right. whatever it was. But, you know, I love Mexico with all my heart. So, you know, leaving Mexico meant no more cheap street food and amazing, you know, uh, natural ju- juices in the mornings yeah. and, and cheap tortillas and beans. But, uh, yeah, getting back into the States was awesome. But it also was at a time of year where it was freezing cold. I didn't cross the border until, uh, early December. Oh, okay. And it was so cold, so cold. Even in Southern New Mexico, it was windy and freezing cold. And every day was kind of miserable in a way. And it was super duper windy. How far did you but, have to go you know, to get I to Boulder? Head down. Uh, from there, I had about 700 miles. So, okay. uh, you know, 1100 kilometers yeah. or something. Yeah, about that. 1112. And uh, yeah, so, so quite a ways. And that wind, you know, we all know being a bike, you know, traveler, Wind is the devil, yeah. <laughs> especially freezing cold wind. Especially when you're heading west into the wind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you were, it was really nice to see like in your video how your family came out and they were all so supportive. 
something I've never felt on my side of the pond here over or my side of the pond, my <laughs> north of uh, the border when I'm on my adventures. My parents never come out for me. But you had kind of a crowd come out and you guys had a little uh, convoy into the city, right? It must have been quite, quite the... Uh... Yeah, that was a really special day and I'll never forget it. You know, it had been, you know, miles, thousands of miles of riding the bike and there were so many unknowns. Getting home from... Honduras was never a sure bet. It's an adventure. Things can happen. But I remember just rolling into Boulder. It was a beautiful December morning. It was well below freezing. The mountains were all lit up by the morning sun. And I had this feeling of joy that I hadn't felt in a long time of just, I did it. I did it. And I feel so good. And then I started looking you know, down the road a bit and I saw a big group of friends waiting for me. And, you know, I rode up to them and my mom gave me a big hug and all my friends were there. And then we all rode into town together. And it was a very special day. Oh, that's really wild. Yeah. Very fortunate there. Yeah. Your bike broke. It's hanging on your wall. Have you done any other touring outside of America, outside of like the Americas? I know you've done lots of travel, but um, touring wise. I have ridden across Cuba. Okay. So that was pretty exciting. I've actually toured in Cuba twice. It's one of my favorite places to ride a bike. It's so safe. I've heard, you know, there's not many vehicles on the roads at all. And the vehicles that are on the roads are very mindful of bikes and buggies and carriages and all that stuff. So I really loved riding in Cuba. But, you know, other than Cuba, I haven't done a bunch of touring anywhere else. I would love to do some more in Europe. I hope to ride the length of Sweden this summer from south to oh, north. Nice. You know, check out that midnight sun. I was an exchange student in Sweden in 1998. Oh, so wow. Where did you live? A special, a big piece of, I lived in Malmo, Sweden, very Malmo, southern yeah. Sweden. Yeah, yeah. I lived in Hesseholm, so yeah. just about uh, an hour north. No way. What were you doing there? Uh, I taught England. I taught at international school there in 2004, 15, 16. Yeah. So I. Uh, no way. That's so cool. So I love Scone. I love Sweden. <laughs> So yeah, same, same, uh, same. Did you learn much Swedish? Yeah, actually I did. I lived with the host family. I went to high school. I had a Swedish girlfriend. I played on a Swedish soccer team. Okay. So I really did get pretty good at Swedish. Oh, that's wild. I didn't learn anything. My roommate was really good. He studied all the time and I was just like, ah, <laughs> I'm so lazy. It's really, it's easy to get away with speaking English and Sweden. Yeah, you got to really so devote yourself to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh man, Sweden, right? Like just their, their hiking trail networks in the South mm-hmm. and like biking and just, I mean, flat as hell, but it was really great. Like just yeah. so developed. Yeah. So yeah, that'll be an exciting adventure if you do south to north. That'll, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Let's talk video stuff. That first trip from Honduras to Boulder, I guess uh, you, you bought a Sony action cam, right? Sony handy. This is way before the action cam. Just like a little handheld Sony handy cam, you know, that's still recorded to tape. This was before digital SD cards. What are tapes? <laughs> Yeah, what are tapes? Yeah, it's the old technology. It looks like a cassette tape. Do the kids out there know what it looks like? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. So I had this camera actually for the entire two years during Peace Corps. I got a degree in broadcast journalism. Okay. So I loved, you know, filming things. And I thought that someday I might make a documentary about my experience in Honduras. I had never really created anything up until this point besides just college projects. But I thought that uh, this trip really warranted some documentation. It was really unique. So I had this camera 
And I filmed the entire adventure all the way home. So a lot of people think, wow, Ryan, you know, has been YouTubing for, you know, five or six years, but really like that was my first production ever. And that was 2005. That's so long ago. And I came home and made like a little five minute teaser video of the experience. And it played on the travel channel. And that was like my first taste of, you know, maybe this is something I want to do yeah. with my life. I want to work in outdoor media. And that's really what set me off on a course of being a video storyteller. So did you just send it to the travel channel and be like, hey, guys, uh, this is a video I made of my my <laughs> my tour. Or like what happened? How does that work? Kind of. They had a show at the time called What's Your Trip? And it was a show where people could send in vacation footage or whatever. And uh, I, yeah, I sent it in, oh, submitted cool. it, and they they chose to play it on air. They paid me 500 whole dollars for it. But uh, more than that, it was just exciting to be on national TV. And it, it lit my fire for doing what I do today. Yeah. But, uh, but even that, like just getting that, yeah, like you said, lighting your fire, but getting that 500 bucks is like, oh, wow, I actually made something that somebody felt was worthwhile other than just myself, you know? So I think that's mm -hmm. that's a nice feeling and it's, it's something to really build off of, right? Yeah, and the whole goal always was to show people the world and other cultures and people and just show how wonderful the planet really is. Because if you watch the news, it's scary and depressing and don't go here, don't go there, bad things happen. And I really wanted to show the, the good side of humanity. And that's what I still do to this day. And that video was the first piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I couldn't imagine you as a uh, as a newscaster. You're like, hi, everybody. How's it going today? <laughs> See this building. People are burning in there right now. This this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's essentially <laughs> what my degree was. I got a degree in broadcast journalism. I did an internship at the local TV station in Denver. And I realized quickly that that was not what I wanted to do at all. Yeah. In any way, shape or form, I wanted to share happy news. I didn't want to share depressing news. And there's a place for everything, of course, but that wasn't what I would mm -hmm. want to do. Fair enough. And uh, what is your style of filming? I mean, uh, has it changed a lot over the years or is it kind of been one of the constants? Yeah, it's changed for sure. You know, and I feel like in the last few years, I've really found my voice mm -hmm. in, in a natural, genuine way. You know, with technology now, it's, you know, the production looks way different, you know, having drones and all these cinematic shots. Whereas if you watch that old Honduras video, I mean, it looks like old homemade crappy video. But, you know, the method really is the same. I, I film myself a lot. I talk about what I'm going through personally in the moment, if it's good or bad or hard or scary. And I always turn the camera on interesting people everywhere I go. And that's always been the same. I love sharing other people's stories. Uh, I think my audience loves it. They yeah. love seeing a piece of the world that's not just coming out of my mouth. I don't know, man. I only watched the Honduras video. Should I have watched other stuff first? Like <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever have issues? Like, Do people ever have issues with you pulling out a camera in the middle of wherever? So I always make sure and ask permission uh, before I just whip out a camera and spook somebody because I know a lot of people are not comfortable around cameras. Mm -hmm. And the whole goal when you're talking with somebody and sharing their stories, you want them to be comfortable. You don't want them to be nervous. Yeah. And so a lot of times 
I'll roll up on somebody and start talking to them and they're super interesting. And I'll say, hey, you know what? My name's Ryan and I have a YouTube channel and I make small documentaries about my experiences. And I would love for you to be on it if you're cool with that. And my audience, I'm sure, would would learn something from you. And so I present it that way. And I would say 99% of the time people say, yeah, let's do it. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I see that like, your your videos, I mean, they're not just focused on biking. They're they're kind of like you said, they 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 encompass all aspects of life from, you know, hiking trips to running to to biking to like even festivals like Burning Man, right? Yeah. After that first trip in Honduras, like what prompted this conscious effort to to keep showing your life and uh what was the chain of yeah. events that took place to to make you really focus on this as a filmmaking career? You know, um I've always shared like every aspect of my life, the highs and the lows. And I cry on my channel every fifth video. <laughs> you know, I get emotional. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And um, I just, I've always enjoyed just sharing all of that. And I think it's fun, fun for the viewers in a way to see that I'm just like a normal guy and I have emotions and ups and downs like anybody. So my channel isn't just bikepacking and it's not just hardcore adventures. You're going to get a little piece of everything. And that's always been important for me to share. I think it humanizes me to a degree. And people really know me. People who watch my channel a lot really know me. Whereas if you watch like some other mountain bike channels and it's just like the POV shots of them raging down trails all, all the time, that's great. That's fine. I'm not criticizing it. But you don't really know that person other than, you know, their mountain bike skill ability. Right. And I've always just felt comfortable sharing that. I'm actually putting a video together right now that is fairly vulnerable. And, uh, you know, I've shared about my struggles with alcohol and heartbreak and other things in life. And, you know, it's I don't think I made a conscious decision like, you know, this is going to be my channel. I'm just going to film everything. It just slowly be- became that way when I felt like, you know what, this is what's going on. And I feel it's important to share this. Yeah, it is really like I find I find your videos are really genuine. Is that the good word for it? Like, yeah, they're, they're, they touch they not just touch your heart, but like you, when you watch it, you feel like it's a real thing. And so that's always mm-hmm. really, really nice. And, yeah. and I remember when like Adam first told me about watching your videos and, you know, oh, man, it felt like ages ago, probably only a few years back. But yeah, it was uh, I got yeah. onto them and, you know, and like even you know, Adam makes awesome videos, but they're just different, right? Like I, I find like yours mm-hmm. don't have as much music. They're, occasionally there's little bits of music and stuff in them, but it's really, it's about the moment. It's about you, uh, what you're experiencing yeah. or or your guests or whoever you're with, like uh, John and Mira and, you know, kind of sharing that story. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really cool. So keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love it. And there's, that's what I love about YouTube is that anybody can have their own channel and they can talk about whatever they feel is important. You know, I started my career in the TV world. I thought I was going to be a TV host for Travel Channel. I worked in the TV world for like 10 years. I was on the Discovery Channel and that was fun, but I could never do what I do now on Mm. TV. You know, YouTube really opens up the storytelling world to a variety of topics. You know, and I love watching YouTube videos about like carpentry, or geology. I mean, there's everything out there and it's, I think it's fascinating and it's, it's really cool. So yeah, the gigs you had like travel channel, Vi- is it called Viator or Vi- whatever? V- yeah. Viator. Viator yeah. and sell your soul. Were these like 
jobs that, you know, you just did through the years or is it like, uh, how, how did that come up? Yeah. So I wanted to be a TV host, mm-hmm. so which is essentially like an actor going to LA and trying to be the next big thing. <laughs> so I was constantly going to casting calls okay. in New York city and trying to become a host. And I took, you know, any job that came my way that gave me any type of practice or exposure or a little bit of money. And so I did tons of random jobs and commercials and pilots and all sorts of stuff. And I had some success in the TV world. You know, I made a a meager living for about 10 years, but I didn't have control over anything. And it got frustrating. And the entertainment world is just very fickle where you think you've landed the biggest thing you've ever come across. All the stars have aligned. You're with a great production team. And then for one reason or another, everything comes crashing down and it doesn't work out and it's completely out of my control. Yeah. And that happened over and over and over. And it was just heartbreaking. And it's a roller coaster and it's not comfortable because you're constantly sitting by the phone waiting for that next big gig to call you. And I finally decided in 2016 that I can't handle this anymore. I want to see if I can build a YouTube channel big enough to the point where I can make a living from YouTube. And so I just started going for it. I started making way more of my own videos than I ever did. You know, okay. before I was working for TV channels and stuff and slowly, slowly, slowly started building up a fo- following and an audience. And it took many, many years. I wouldn't say, you know, in the last 15 months, maybe it's really gotten to a point where I do make a living off of YouTube, but it took a long time. Okay. So I was going to ask you that is how long it took before it's actually financially viable in the sense of, you know, you can dedicate full time to this and not have to worry about any side hustles or, or trying to make money. Yep. And you'd say, yeah, it was probably like four years, right? Four, four and a half years. Yeah. I mean, cause at the beginning of YouTube, I would make these videos. I, you know, put just as much effort into the videos then as I do now. And they'd get like 85 views and it's a bit demoralizing. You're like, okay, is this ever going to work? And then you make another video maybe it gets, 90 views because yeah. five people from the last video told their friends to watch a video and it was just really slow growth. And I second guessed myself all the time. You know, I was like 37, 38 years old at this point in life. And I'm like, my friends have all these careers and they're making real money. And here I am yeah. struggling, trying to build this YouTube channel that nobody really understood. And was it ever going to work? You know? And, um, I just stuck with it. I've been relentless. And when I tell young people who want to become YouTubers, you know, how to do it, I just tell them to be relentless. And you just really have to persevere through all the hard times because there's going to be many, many moments where you second guess yourself. And, uh, you know, luckily I keep my expenses very low. I don't have a car. Uh, You know, I only eat rice and beans. I'm not a fancy guy. I don't have a lot of toys. (laughs) So I didn't need to make a lot of money. Um, but now I'm a multimillionaire and life's great. Hey, when are you going to buy a big pink mansion and start making TikTok I'm videos? A big mansion <laughs> and it's, it's quite a life. I have Lamborghinis and a 10 car garage. So uh, TikTok, uh, is that next or what's up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I tried to get into TikTok. I haven't, I haven't quite embraced that yet. There are some really cool videos though. Like, I mean, aside from all the, the bullshit you see on there, I see some like you're talking about carpentry. Like there's some amazing little one minute TikTok videos on carpentry where people yeah. are just showing really cool ways to do things. And you're like, wow, like even TikTok, like there can be a real purpose that's, that's meaningful rather than just, you know. 
people trying to to shuffle and stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. There's a lot of great stuff on TikTok. And my mission with my channel from the very beginning was to create content that puts value into the world in some way, shape or form. So the viewers are either being entertained or educated or inspired. And there's a lot of people on TikTok doing that. You know, I follow some people up in Canada, actually, some First Nations people that talk a lot about their culture and their language. And it's stuff that I've never been exposed to. Ah, cool. So around 2016, you said you started working uh, more seriously on the Facebook page and, oh, sorry, Facebook, uh, YouTube, <laughs> my bad, and uh, making sure that the content coming out was, uh, you know, more content and pushing it. I remember you, you said like when you, your video had like 80 views and I think back to the podcast and I remember it. The first time when I realized somebody had listened, I had like 50 downloads of my podcast. And I was like, oh my God, 50 people have actually listened to this. Like kind of the opposite of you in that sense. I was like, I was blown away that 50 people actually listened to a, to me mm. talking to somebody. But the growth is really slow. Like it just, it takes so long before you mm -hmm. start to, to see the growth, you know, like I, I'm, you know, my podcast isn't huge. It's probably, it's almost at a hundred thousand downloads, which is, Hey, that's, that's pretty awesome. Like, Congratulations, man. That's huge. You're, you're putting something good into the world. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's taken so long, you know, like, um, well, it's about three, over three years now. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, what's it? It's a long slog. Like you got to just keep working on it and. As long as the passion's there and I'm feeling good, there's times where I release one episode every month and a half because I'm a, a little funked down. And then there's times where it's like every week and a half, you know? So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say, you know, I, I love hearing these types of stories, you know, because it is hard. And a lot of people have these grand plans and dreams and they don't stick with it. Yeah. And, you know, nothing's going to come of that if you if you bail quickly and i talked to a lot of young i go to schools all the time and oh yeah and talk to to young people about creating alternate lives and what you can do with your with yourselves besides the typical jobs that society you know throws down on us and uh it's really about you know believing in yourself believing in whatever you're creating whether you're you know a print artist or graphic designer whatever it is and just sticking with it and, mm -hmm. you know, problem solving goes back to like my first trip home from Honduras where every day you have to problem solve and figure things out. And uh, that has a lot to do with what I do now. Like there's, I by no means made it. If I stopped making videos, you know, my channel would plummet in a matter of a month. Like I have to constantly be thinking about the next video, the next project. What can I do differently? How can I make my videos different? Engaging with my mm -hmm. audience trying to respond to every question and comment that I get so I can actually help people. Because at the end of the day, the goal of my channel is to help people. And does it get to be a bit much sometimes? Like, do you just kind of get, do you get in your funks as well, I guess? Oh yeah, for sure. This past month, I haven't done anything. And I made a video actually in early January saying, hey, I feel a little burned out for the first time in my life. I'm, I'm worn out physically and mentally and the grind is just getting to me. Because for the past six years, I've been making on average of about 65 videos a year. So that's more a than that's one like a week. A, yeah, and these are high lot. production value videos and it takes a ton of time. And then I'm answering every single comment and question and people are sending me emails and asking me, you know, questions about everything. And I try to be there for everybody. And in early January, I just said, Hey, you know what? I need to take a time out. This is, uh, this is beating me down. And, uh, so for the, for the past month, I, I've completely, avoided 
cameras and editing software and YouTube. That's awesome. I mean, sometimes it's necessary just to, you know, it's like a reset. Yeah. And then you come back stronger and better. Or, you know, sometimes I guess even some people might say, oh, that reset was exactly what I needed, but I'm going to do a full reboot and follow something else, you know, but, uh, you know, just getting that reset, the chance to calm down and kind of spend some time with family and friends and think of other things, I guess is. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Podcasting, man, it takes a lot of time. I think it's I mean, when it comes to editing, it's it's very similar to YouTube. You can you can spend hours and do like a phenomenal job or you could do it quickly. Same with podcasting. And, you know, it comes out and it'll be good. People will listen to it. But at the same time, like I, I feel personally, if I don't do my absolute best to make it as good a sound quality and get rid of the ums and, you know, go through it and do a nice job with it. You know, for me, it's like I got to put the time in. It's got to it's got to be good. I'm too too picky. <laughs> Well, I really hope that you take out every single um from me in this episode. <laughs> All right. So for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, uh, let's see how many times you can say um. <laughs> um. Can't do it if you're humming it and blending it in the words. <laughs> how has your audio video equipment changed and morphed since the days of the Handycam? I mean, mm-hmm. things have changed and they're changing so fast all the time, I'm sure. So Yeah, every year there's something cool and new. And, you know, I try to stay up with it to a degree. I'm not like a full on gearhead, but, you know, whenever I travel on a biking adventure, I have three cameras with me. I have a drone, I have an action cam, and then I have like a higher quality Sony SLR. And that camera is for doing interviews and, you know, the beauty shots and flowers and nature. The action cam obviously is for when I'm on the bike and I'm, you know, shooting the handlebars or helmet uh, POV. Yeah. And then the drone obviously is everybody's favorite. And uh, I love filming with the drone. And then I bring tons of batteries because you don't want to be in this beautiful moment and then not have any power. And, you know, it changes every year. And it's the biggest thing is it's just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. When drones first came out, like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years yeah. ago with the DJI Phantom, it was big. There was no way any bike packers were going to carry around one of those drones. And then, you know, the DJI Mavic Pro came out, which was way smaller. And so that allowed travelers to throw a drone in their backpack. And now there's the Mavic Mini. That was can, that your first one was the uh, the Mavic Pro or? Yeah, the, my first drone was the Mavic Pro. Yeah, okay. and I brought it straight to Nepal. Yeah. And now, you know, the Mavic Mini is absolutely tiny and it's it's really easy to travel with. The quality is not as good, but it's the ease of uh, use is, mm. is great. And same with like action cameras, the stabilization is insane. You don't really even need gimbals anymore. They're so smooth amazing, and everything's 4k and stunningly beautiful. And so, you know, the average human now with, you know, a couple thousand dollars can create broadcast quality, uh, video content. Yeah. So you're using a Mavic mini. I think there's a Mavic mini too, man. You got to get your shopping out. Oh, yeah. sorry. That's what I meant. Mavic <laughs> mini too. That's what I oh, have. Okay. Yeah, mini, so you got- <laughs> that's how much of a gearhead I am. I don't even know which cameras I have. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what's the difference in the Mavic mini and Mavic mini too. Cause I was thinking about getting a drone, but I'm like, Oh, you know what? I can see the, the Mavic minis are so much cheaper to buy just cause people are selling them used. Cause they got a Mavic mini too. And I thought, oh, maybe I could pick one up as a as an entry. Well, I lost one in a tree outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you want to go get it, it's still there. I'm on my way. <laughs> How hard did you laugh when Adam flew his drone off the back of the BC ferries and uh, <laughs> never got it back? Uh, I know the pain. I've lost <laughs> drones because of wind. Yeah. I've crashed drones. I got a drone stuck in a tree. 
this November and I couldn't get it down. So I know the pain of losing drones. And the biggest thing is losing the footage. So my biggest tip to everybody is to swap out your card every single day. Uh, Don't have like three weeks of footage on a 128 gigabyte card, go fly your drone and then lose the drone because now you've just lost your entire trip. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. What GoPro do you use? I don't even know what they have. I have the GoPro 10. So I have the newest GoPro and I started with the eight and then I got the nine and now I have the 10. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, I like GoPros. They do a great job, but they're by far the most finicky camera I have. How's that? You know, you hit, yeah, that you hit record and then it stops recording for no reason. And the menu, the touchscreen's all stupid and frustrating. So GoPros are cool when they work, but they don't work a lot. Ah, I have the GoPro and, you know, 5. Viewers so. <laughs> don't realize this. Viewers just think it's like super easy to go out on a bike ride and film blah, blah, blah. But cameras are constantly not working. Drones yeah. are really finicky. The gimbals get stuck. You know, the battery says it's full, but it won't lift off. I mean, there's so much nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I have a GoPro 5 and I think I bought it in 2016 for my wife and I's first trip when we were going into Indonesia. And I can't believe it's six years old. I'm just like, oh, it still works well. It's not as, you know, it's not as stable as the newest stuff. Like the new stuff is, man, you could be, you could put it in a paint shaker and it would still look smooth, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You got to tell me, what is that mount you use on your bike for your GoPro? Because that is awesome. It's just so versatile. Yeah. A lot of people think it's like a mount that I actually use for filming, but it's like a, it's the GoPro clamp arm or whatever it's called. So it's just storage, really. So I clamp it onto my handlebar, but I never record from my handlebar. Oh, okay. Um, what I do is I just grab it when I want to film. So I'll turn it on myself and talk blah, blah, blah. And I'll hold it forward for 10 seconds, side 10 seconds, film the ground for 10 seconds. So I'm always getting you know clips that I can use to make the edits a little bit more snappy. So it's oh, not okay. just one field of vision the entire time. So like whenever you, when you pull it out to video, you kind of do a few different shots and angles and then say, okay. And then you know that all those little shots right there are from that one point in time. And so sequentially and whatnot, now this makes really good sense, man. You're smart. Did you learn that in school? So no, I just, (laughs) I think just figuring stuff out, you know, I think you just, it's when you have a video with a lot of different angles, it's way more interesting for the viewer to watch it. So yeah, there are mountain bike channels where it's just straight handlebar POV mm-hmm. and it looks like a video game and it's cool, but that's all you're seeing. I try to show, you know, five different angles in a matter of, you know, 10 seconds, like a little bit forward, a little bit sideways, feet pedaling off to the left, you know, trees up above and then bop, 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 edit them together. And it makes a fun little sequence. Very cool. I love it. Um, do you shoot with your cell phone a lot? Not a lot. Uh, there are moments, though, when I use my cell phone in a pinch, but I don't use it a lot because the audio is not good. Stabilization is not good. But mm. there have been times when I've snuck in some iPhone footage. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And I guess if you're carrying a uh, like you said, a DSLR or a mirrorless or, you mm-hmm. know, if you got that and you're going to pull out your phone, you might as well pull out the better camera and take that landscape shot then. Right. Yep. Yeah. Do you use a dynamo? I think I you've changed from dynamo to power bank recently. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So I had a dynamo on the great divide okay. for, on the bike that I designed the priority 600 X. And I thought that it would be something that I'd want for the production 
of the bicycle, mm-hmm. but it just really didn't provide enough power to make it worth it. And we decided to get rid of the dynamo and put the money into a better front suspension fork, the Ren fork. And now power banks are just so amazing. I mean, you yeah. can you can charge them up and they can keep your things going for a few days for sure. Like seven or eight charges on your cell phone and, and uh, other cameras. So, yeah. And Garmin. Um, or, yeah. No more dynamo. Yeah. It's, that's a really good point. Uh, something I've been thinking about the same thing too. You know, like I, I do a lot of bike packing stuff and fast, not much stopping time kind of thing. Um, you know, ITT style and I have a dynamo, but the one time I really needed it, it was failing on me. And, no. and then I didn't have enough power banks. I had a 5,000 milliamp bank that was good for two days and it was going to have to run my headlamp, which, cause I couldn't use my dynamo light, had to run my, charge my Garmin, charge my phone. Oh man, what a nightmare on 5,000. <laughs> <It was, clears throat> yeah. So I've been kind of considering the same thing is do I carry more power banks or do I stick mm-hmm. with the dynamo and try to master it? There's some people that really believe in the dynamos, but again, you have, your wheels have to be spinning at a pretty fast rate. So if you're on like a slow mountain bike trail, bike packing adventure, like the Colorado trail that I did last summer, mm-hmm. there's no way you're going to get any power. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So speaking of bikepacking, your first real kind of bikepacking experience, was it the Baja Divide? Was that kind of the first one? Yeah, that was. Up until that point, all of my adventures had been more typical bike touring on roads. And by uh, the Baja Divide was the first time it was dirt and it beat the crap out of me and really was a wake up call that bikepacking is a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I saw that emotion in the videos. Uh <laughs> Yeah. yeah, bikepacking can really beat the body and, and the Baja Divide probably even more so than a lot of other routes, right? Just because. Yeah, Baja Divide is just rough, all around rough. And I love it. It's beautiful. Baja is a very, very magical place. I'd love to go back someday. Um, but it's 10 times harder than the Great Divide. The Great Divide is a cakewalk. Yeah. Compared to so would you recommend divide. other people also do the Baja Divide as their first bikepacking experience? <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe it depends. <laughs> you know, I was going into it thinking that it was going to be mountain biking. Okay. You know, I was kind of ignorant. I'm like, I love mountain biking. It's going to be single tracks. It'll be fun. But the Baja Divide is a lot of sand and washboard and just horrible roads. And so you're just like being shook into hell the, the entire time. And it just wasn't all that fun. Uh, I went back in, and did the Baja Divide in 2020 with a much different mindset mm. and I really enjoyed it a lot more. Okay. But I would say if anybody's doing the Baja Divide for the very first time, watch definitely Ryan's have video. front suspension. <laughs> yeah. Watch Ryan's video and know what you're getting into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my buddy Nemo went down there this year and he was going to ride it on his gravel bike and I was scratching Ooh, my head no at way. first. It's like, how are you going to do that? And then after about three days of like 15, 20 kilometer days, I'm probably mostly walking. He's like, I'm just going to take the road. And he, so he rode yeah. Baja, but he did it on the highway. And you got a, you had three inch tires, I think. Yep, I did. Yeah. And I think that's, that's right on. That's what you want. Yeah. That's what I had read too. What kind of bike did you use? During those trips, I had a Trek 1120 and, uh, I, beat the crap out of it and it didn't really last long. And <laughs> it was the, the motivation for then designing the priority 600 X, which I ride now, you know, which is a lot more bomb proof and it has the, the gates and the pinion drive train, you know, in Baja it's so dusty and Sandy that you're constantly lubing your yeah. chain on my Trek 1120. It was endless. And now with a, with a belt drive, 
it's not necessary. I had I had read like mediocre reviews of the 1120. Some people really loved it. Some were, you know, a little bit more like the the concept was great. It was kind of developed Ooh. as this bike packing mountain bike could take on pretty like 29 plus tires, integrated racks and stuff. But then the reviews were kind of, eh, you know? Yeah. If you look at the Trek 1120, it looks like a bomb proof tank, but it's really not as strong as I was hoping it would be. I, you know, I broke the rear rack. I broke the rear hub to a point where I couldn't even find parts to fix it. And uh, it's just, if they toughened it up a bit, it would be a great bike, mm-hmm. but it's just not. Maybe just uh, the quality of the parts or like a rack like that probably yeah. should be steel or something, right? It's probably aluminum as yeah, well. Yeah, it's aluminum and I mean, I didn't even have much weight on it and it the rear rack just snapped completely yeah. off. What was your packing setup like on the bike? It was, um, you know, two rear like uh, dry bags on the back and a frame pack holding all my food and stuff and camera equipment. And on the front, I had my tent. So I try to roll pretty light. I try to, you know, Mm. not bring too much. And after 10 years of bike travel, I've realized that you just don't really need that much. You know, of course, I'm in a different situation because I'm filming everything and I have three cameras and batteries and adapters and all that crap. But other than that, I don't bring much extra. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess on the Baja Divide, there's times where you need to carry a shit ton of water as well, right? Yeah, that's right. There is. You need to bring a lot of water. Yeah. Is there anything you you brought that you, you know, as it was your first bike packing experience, was there anything that you brought that you thought, oh, I didn't really need or things that you wish you would have brought? My first time in Baja, I didn't even bring a tent. Oh, okay. And it was okay. I just slept on the ground every night and luckily it didn't rain. I got, you know, bitten by a few bugs here and there, but it really wasn't that bad. The second time I went to Baja, I knew I was going to be in the southern section and there's a lot more bugs down there. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bring my small tent. And I was happy that I did that. But other than that, I brought I brought everything I, that I thought was was needed. Yeah. And uh, are there any things that you wouldn't leave home without? I think your shaver, you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, my shaver is a funny one. People always comment on that. You should auction but it I off like charity. A smooth- <laughs> I know I should. People ask, I should be sponsored by Braun, actually. <laughs> People ask me all the time what my shaver is and they tell me, oh, I went and bought that shaver. It's a great one. Um, I, I like ever since I was like able to grow facial hair, I've liked a smooth face. So shaver, even though it sounds ridiculous, is completely necessary for me. I also always bring like a kitchen butter knife. <laughs> yeah. and people think people think that's a little bit silly, but I love it. It's just a lot easier to scoop peanut butter and mm. beans and you know, if you have a Leatherman, the blade is so short and at the end of the peanut butter can, you're getting your knuckles in the yeah. in the can and they get all peanut buttery and it's just messy. Yeah. And worst come to worst, bears and stuff. You just, legends of the fall, pull that knife just, out and charge it. Yeah. With the butter <laughs> knife, the butter knife. Of death. Well, hopefully there's peanut butter on it still. You just kind of throw it at the bear and it eats yeah, the yeah, knife there you and go. chokes on it or something. Um <laughs> What uh, what advice would you give people going on a uh, on their first bike packing trip? This is a. Uh... I always tell people the the best thing to bring on your first trip is a good attitude. Again, it goes back to problem solving. It's an adventure. Things are going to happen that you don't expect. Things are going to happen that you're not ready for, and you have to have a good attitude when things uh, go south. And that's really the biggest thing. It really is. You know, um, 
it's there's times when I've gotten frustrated out there or pissy or the weather sucks or I'm getting rained on or it's too windy or blah, 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 but whatever it is. Then you have to like, just like take a step back and be like, you know what? I'm out in nature and all I have to do every day is wake up and ride my bike. And that's a pretty fortunate situation to be in. No matter mm-hmm. how bad it is, you're outside having the time of your life. And a lot of times these trips take months to plan. And you, you know, you've been planning for it. You've taken time off of work. This is a big deal. And you don't want to go out there and get pissy and moany and just like bail on the trip three days in because yeah. it's not what you thought it was going to be. That's true. You kind of mentioned the priority bike. I forget that the number 600X or something. Is yep. that is that right? Yep. Yeah. So yep. tell us about the bike and um, and then maybe we can tie that in with the Great Divide mountain bike route. Totally. So uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was canceled. All my trips and adventures, essentially my international travels, at least. And uh, the guys from Priority called me. I have a very close relationship with them. And I we started brainstorming and we thought, hey, let's develop a mountain bike. Because at that time, Priority only made essentially like town city commuter bikes. Oh, okay. Uh, always based on belt drives and internal gearing. So low maintenance and a low maintenance bike packing bike really has been my dream for a long time. So we came up with this idea for this uh, hardtail mountain bike with front suspension, with the pinion and the gates and, you know, affordable to a degree. Most bikes with pinion and gates, if it's from a, you know, big name manufacturer mm-hmm. is going to start at about 5,000 USD, For sure, yeah. which is a lot of money. And I wanted ours to be a bit cheaper. And so we went back and forth with designs and what I wanted on it and what was important to me. And I rode the prototype down the Great Divide in June of 2020. So straight in the middle of the pandemic after lockdown. And it performed really great, flawlessly. And I used that ride as, you know, a research ride, essentially, to see what I might want to change. And so when I finished the ride, I came back to priority. I said, let's change this and this and this. We talked about the Dynamo Hub earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's it's out there in the world. And it's a pretty sweet bike. Yeah, I, I recently got a new bike as well. And uh, so I'm building it up. Anyways, I just ordered the, the frame. And they make the frame to fit opinion as well. But oh. I asked about it and he said, man, the, you know, of course, the it was going to be a nine months wait for opinion because just a shortage, you know, the same thing. Wow. Like all the companies are, you know, struggling to, to have supply chain stuff, having supply chain issues. And he said, so if you want to wait till next year, you could get the opinion one or I was like, gotcha. uh, I don't want to wait another year, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And, you know. The, the first customers who got the first batch of the 600X had to wait about nine months to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Because of those same reasons. Yeah. So I'm actually considering putting a Rollhoff in it. I haven't decided 100% because they're expensive. Like the Rollhoff hubs, like 1500 mm-hmm. Canadian dollars or something, you know? And, yeah. But then I could have a belt drive because it is the the rear chains, the, the seats they can spread apart by taking out a couple bolts and you could fit a belt through it. Oh, so. Cool. Thought, well, it could be really cool to have a belt drive, uh, not have to worry about, you know, lubing and all that shit. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Do it. Do it. Yeah. It's just money. Yeah. Come on, podcast people. <laughs> Listeners. <Yeah. laughs> no, I don't use any money from the podcast. A little bit that it brings in all goes back in the podcast. So not into my bikes. My wife's yeah, okay. salary, however, not the same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you rode the Great Divide. You started, I guess it wasn't in Canada because of the borders, right? 
I didn't start in Canada. Yeah, unfortunately, everything was closed. So I started at the border in northern Montana. Oh, that's too bad, eh? I know, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I'll go back someday. I'll go back someday up to Banff and uh, do that section. Yeah, Uh, but who knows when. And uh, so you rode the Priority 600 and was it considered the Priority 600X at the time? Or is that like the final name or was it just a 600? Or? Yeah, it was always the 600X. Okay. Yep. So overall, the experience with Pinion has been great. Yeah, I love Pinion. So I've been using Pinion on a Priority commuter bike. That one is called the 600. Oh, OK. And so I've had Pinion since 2018 and I love it. I'm a big fan. And that was another... Uh, inspiration for creating a mountain bike with pinion. Okay. And I know there it's, it's, you know, even when you consider, you know, the belt and all, like all these things, it's, it is a bit heavier than a traditional shifting system, right? Yep. It is definitely a bit heavier, but I always tell people, you know, when your bike is packed down with bags and gear and water, it's like, it's all, it's just going to be a heavy bike, no matter what bike you're on. Yeah. What, what plus or minus one kilo is probably not going to make or break the, like two pounds is not going to make or break your day. Right. No, not, not at all. What's uh what was your experience like on the divide then? Like the, the terrain, I guess a lot less sandy than, uh, <laughs> than Baja for sure. The great divide was uh, beautiful. I absolutely loved it. Montana was probably my favorite state okay. just riding through those beautiful forests and mountains and. It's very rideable. It's, it's way easier than I thought it would be. You know, for the last 10 years, I've heard of the Great Divide, the longest yeah. off-road mountain bike route in the world. And it seems so extreme, but it's really not. It should be called the Great Divide Gravel Bike Route. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what I heard. I've heard that you could you could ride it with a gravel bike, but because it's so long and it's, it's so rough on your body over the accumulated distance that mountain bikes are the preferred bike for it. I'm much more comfortable on a mountain bike. I like flat bars. I like front suspension. I guess you could have that on a gravel bike. But uh, I would say actually most of the people I saw out there were on gravel bikes. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. How many uh, miles a day were you covering? It depended. I would say you know anywhere from 70 to 100. That's a lot. That's good. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a lot. You know, But it was with John and Mira for most of it. And I, you know, I like to crank, I like to wake up and just pedal hard all day mm-hmm. and see how far I can get. You know, a lot of people tell me to slow down and, you know, I, I like it. I like the yeah. physical challenge of riding my bike. Yeah, me too. And, uh, same thing. People say like, ah, oh, but you're going too fast. You miss all these other things. If you're, if you're cycling, you know, 200 kilometers or 120 miles a day, you're, you're missing this, you're missing that. And I'm like, yeah, but. I'm happy. And when I do stop, it's meaningful. I talk to people, I have conversations and then I, you know, take some pictures and eat. And what else? What else do you want? <laughs> yeah. What are some of the the difficulties you had to overcome on the divide? I mean, is it just the length or what else? You know, I was in my groove on the divide. It wasn't that I never had a day that was all that physically hard. I didn't get worn out. I really I loved it. There's water everywhere. Yeah. Like you never need to worry about water. It's pristine and beautiful and campsites galore. And, you know, I was with John and Mira and then my friend Kevin came and joined us and we had a good crew and it just felt great every single day. I guess the biggest, you know, issue during the time that I did it was that when I got to Southern Colorado, New Mexico had a very strict COVID policy where Uh. anybody entering the state had to quarantine for two full weeks. 
And so that was a bummer. I didn't actually finish the entire divide in one go. I decided to, you know, finish in Southern Colorado and go home. And then this past May, almost a year later, I uh, went and did the New Mexico section. Yeah. How did that go? It was hard. The New Mexico section is definitely the hardest section of the divide. I also did it in mid-May. So there was a lot of snow to contend with. I was pushing my bike up and over mountain passes through three feet of snow. Uh, There was tons of wind. The roads are way rougher. It it reminded me a bit more of the Baja divide. Okay. And you, uh, and you didn't finish again, right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I'm really good at not finishing these adventures. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So I was about 120 miles from the Mexican border. And because of the strain of riding through snow and mud and my belt drive popping off. And at the time I didn't quite know how to fix it in the correct manner. And I was rolling it back on, which is a big no, no with the carbon belt drives. Uh. I weakened the drive so much so that a week later I was pedaling hard up a steep single track section and I snapped my belt broke and I didn't have an extra belt, which was ironic because the year before I did have an extra belt and I never used it. And Breaking a carbon belt drive is almost unheard of. And I thought, okay, New Mexico is only 700 miles. It's a brand new bike, brand new belt. I'll just go out there and, you know, get it done. And, uh, yeah, always be prepared. Uh-huh. Don't do, don't do what I did. So when you <laughs> rode the, uh, when you rode the New Mexico section, that was on the, the newest like model of the priority 600 X, right? That was the production model. Yep, that was the oh, production okay. model. And I had just gotten it and uh, <laughs> it was beautiful and I was so excited to be on the real thing. So what's the trick when you, uh, if your gate's belt falls off, are you supposed to like loosen up the the tensioners and let it, then put it on and then retension? Is that the idea? Yep, that's exactly Gosh, it. Shit. Or, you know, loosen up the wheel completely and so almost take it off and slip it back on uh-huh. because it's carbon fibers. You don't want it bending one way or the other that's what really weakens it okay and so rolling it on like we've all done with regular chains we roll it back on really really is like the biggest no-no for a carbon belt drive oh shit and here i was thinking like it's exactly what i would have done you know like i would have just yeah yeah. and in the situation i think most people would have done what i did because i had pushed my bike through snow for like four hours and now i was in the most insane mud i've ever been in and it was cold. It was toward the end of the day. There was like thunder off in the distance. And I was desperate to keep to keep moving. And so I did whatever I could in the moment to fix it as fast as possible, which came back to bite me in the booty about seven days later. All right. And are you going to go back and finish that last hundred miles at some point? Is it, uh, <laughs> is it in the books? It's in the works? I, I wouldn't go back specifically just to do that hundred miles. Actually, the final 100 miles is like 70 miles on pavement, so it's not even oh, okay. a cool final 100 miles. <laughs> if I ever do the the full Great Divide again, starting in Banff, Canada, then I would, you know, hopefully get the whole thing done in one shot. Fair enough. Yeah, so you've used a lot of different tires too, um, you know, from Baja to, I think, the Great Divide. Were you using like 2.25s or something, or was it bigger? I can't yeah, remember. on the Great Divide, I was using 2.25s, which was enough, because like I said, I mean, you can ride that route pretty much on a gravel bike. Right. I'm a fan of wider tires in general. I like the plus sizes. Right now, my 600X has 2.6 inch tires. Is that what you used on the Colorado Trail, right? Yep. I used 2.6 on the Colorado Trail. I haven't watched any of your videos, but I just seem to guess well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
Yeah. You know, and I, again, I am not like the most knowledgeable gear guy. Mm -hmm. I, I use what works, but I don't know a lot about everything. People email me all the time with, what do you think about this bike and this setup and this gear? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I'm not the guy to talk to about all this. Yeah. People emailed me too. Same things. And I'm like, I try to give as good advice as I can. I say, oh, from my experience, this could work, but like, I don't know everything, you know, I'm just, uh, just another dude. Yeah, I tell people, go to your local bike shop and talk to them. They know a lot more than I do. That's a good call. So, yeah, you're you're enjoying the 2.6s now? Yeah. Are you going to stick with that for a while then? or Probably, yeah, 2.24 to 2.6. You know, the, the 600X can take up to three inches, actually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's really cool. If I ever take it back to Baja, it's ready for the desert. Nice. Yeah, I've heard I've, I've heard really good things about, like, exactly what I've heard is, like, three inches is a little bit too big um, mm -hmm. when you're riding, if you're not riding something like Baja, you know? It's just, it's really big. Yeah. It, it's a little bit slower, but, like, that 2.4 to 2.6 mark is really a sweet spot where you get the, the best mm -hmm. of comfort and speed. Yep. Uh, I got to ask you about your saddles. Um, you, I think you use mm -hmm. WTB. I forget what model it is. Mm -hmm. I, I'm constantly in the, the search for the fucking saddle that will stop hurting my ass. You know, it, it's a tough one. But yeah, so WTB Pure. The WTB Pure fits for me. But again, I tell people Everybody's saddles are kind of like shoes. You know, some, some shoes might fit me great, but they might mm -hmm. hurt your foot like a bitch. So it's really, <laughs> it's got to test out a whole bunch. And yeah. luckily for me, the WTB Pure likes my booty size and it feels good. Nice, nice. Yeah, I've I'm still searching. I'm using a Brooks right now, but it's it's not perfect. It works well. Mm. It sometimes some rides I get chafing. Maybe it's just the way I'm, you know, bouncing around on the seat or whatever. But it's really dependent on. Uh, it's, yeah, it's still an unknown. So maybe you have a deformed ass. It might be. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, I might need some <laughs> WTV pure treatment. <laughs> What's your go-to food when touring? I know you're vegetarian, right? Oh, yes. Uh, my go-to food, and everybody knows this, are beans. Like, that's kind of like my my trademark. I bring tortillas <laughs> and beans, and sometimes I jazz them up with, like, green chilies from New Mexico. But I've done this ever since I rode home from Honduras. Okay. Like, tortillas and beans. I can eat them all day long. Provides, you know, some carbs and proteins, and they taste good to me. So that's my go-to food. And that's just like your refried beans, I'm assuming, yeah. not like a can of black beans from the grocery store. Like. Sometimes black beans, but it's just messier. Refried beans are just easier to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're heavier than other types of foods if you're carrying cans of beans. But I don't know. I don't really care. It goes back to like, I don't really care what my bike weighs. I'm going to bring what's comfortable and what I like. And it's good energy. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I saw in uh in Baja on the Mexico on the 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 Baja Divide, you did eat some meat. I mean, I guess there are occasions where you just can't kind of avoid it um, when somebody gives you food. Yeah, so I've been a vegetarian since two thousand and three, and when I'm in control of what goes into my body, it's vegetarian or even even more these days vegan. No no animal products, but there are times when I'm in a foreign country or Mexico or Honduras when somebody offers you a plate of food. And to them, it's a really big deal. And so I don't sit there and get fussy and tell them that I don't eat meat. Right. You know, when I'm dealing with somebody who who lives, you know, in a, in a, uh, a shack who uh, is, you know, honored with the arrival of a, a bike packer and is, you know, being super generous. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you can tell like this is them going out of their way to make the moment special. And did you find it challenging to find vegetarian food in Korea? I've known a few people who are vegetarians. Yeah, Korea is tough. 
I mean, Asian food in general can be vegetarianized, veganized pretty easy if you just stick with the noodles and vegetables. But there's definitely a lot of meat and seafood and all that stuff. Yeah. I remember somebody, um, I forget who it was, but a friend of mine, they they were in Korea and they're vegetarian and they ordered some food and they said no meat. And then it came and it was pork. And she's like, but this mm. is pork and I don't eat pork. They're like, oh, so they went and got another dish and came back. And she's like, it was like some kind of a porgy type thing. And she's looking, she's like, this is, this is pork. And the lady's like, no, 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 bacon. And she's like, oh, okay, I'll just kind of eat it. And, you know, yeah, sometimes things get lost in translation. Yeah, exactly. Are you a sunset or a sunrise type of person? Ooh, I mean, sunrises, you have to earn them. Like getting up early can be painful and hard, but they, for me, they, they feel a little bit more magical because it's it's the first light of the day and you, you hear things come alive and the animals and the birds. So sunrises are really special. Of course, I love sunsets as well. But if you ask me one or the other, I'm going to go with sunrises. Good to know for everybody else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you love most about bike touring? What, you know, as a as a filmmaker and everything, what's what's so special about bike touring that maybe you don't get in the other aspects of your life? I always tell people when I'm out on my bike, I feel alive and I'm connected to myself and I'm connected to nature and I'm connected to the people that I meet along the way. And those are my three favorite aspects of riding a bike is connection. And it's the only time I really get it in life where I'm you know, not connected to social media as much as normal. I'm usually out of cell phone range. It's just me and my bike and whatever comes. Okay. With your, your upcoming tour in Sweden, um, is it going to be more traditional bike packing or sorry, bike touring, or is it going to be sticking along the lines of bike packing and trying to get off the beaten track? Yeah. So Sweden, it might be bike touring. I might be on roads. I've tried to find like off-road ways up to the top of Sweden and there's probably something I can put together through Kamut, mm -hmm. but I might just uh, take the easy road and ride on some pavement. <laughs> and are you going to come back down then, down through Norway or something? Or that's, uh... No, I think I'll just do Sweden because, you know, my host family is still there. All my friends are in Sweden. So I want to like, after I'm finished, hang out with everybody. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Don't know what I was going to ask. Because I, uh, I already talked <laughs> about it. My, right next, on, my next thing was going to be about vegetarianism, but yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. What else? What else can we talk about? I guess uh, you, you do some work with charities, right? Some charitable foundations. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I want my channel to be of benefit to the world. And so we, I've done some fundraisers through my channel. Last year, we auctioned off a Priority 600X and oh, raised $45,000 and used that money to send to bicycle nonprofit organizations that get children on bikes. And so we sent money to the Navajo Nation in Arizona and the Blackfoot Nation up in Montana and other programs here in Colorado just to get kids on bikes. I'm a big believer in bicycles. I'm a huge bicycle advocate. I've never had a car in my life. I think bikes are the way forward in many ways. It's the silver bullet to solve a lot of our world's problems, our dependency on oil. And I, I think that bikes make people happier and kinder humans. So I just want more people to be riding bikes. And if we can start them early, they're going to fall in love with it. And hopefully it'll stick with them throughout life. Awesome. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more on that. So new relationship. I think I saw on your Instagram. Is, is she a big biker? Are you going to get her a bike? She, she rides a bike for sure. She's 
She's more of a, of a runner for sure, an ultra uh, runner, an obstacle course racer. Oh, sweet. But yeah, she's a she's a stronger athlete than I am, which is amazing. She's awesome. I admire her greatly. And But I am obviously going to get her on a bike. I would love to do bikepacking adventure with her someday. Uh, that'd be very, very cool. Yeah. So people can follow you at uh, Doozer TV on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Anything else I missed that you kind of want to chat about? It's probably so I think much. We've, we've covered a lot, man. It's been a, it's been a really enjoyable experience i appreciate it uh, you know my thing is just creating good content to to make people happy or inspire them and i'm going to keep on doing that even though i've taken a break for the past month and you know if any listeners out there watch my videos uh, i want to give you a big hug and a thank you <laughs> and i want to thank you for having me on your podcast oh, thanks for making great. it happen and uh, i know like we we talked about it uh, like last year and then um I wasn't producing much in the fall, you know, being in back in school, I'm a teacher and it's, it's always the fall block, September to December is so busy and I just didn't put out many episodes. And then when I got out, I think you went to, did you go to Iceland with your mom? Yeah, I went to Iceland with my mom. How was that? It was great. Iceland is a fascinating country. I want to go back next time with my bicycle. With your bike, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I know Lael was setting up like a course and a route up there, um, kind of like way off uh, in one corner of the country and Looked awesome. Looks like an yeah, it's amazing a magical place. It's definitely different. You know, I've traveled all over the world. Iceland, the landscape is the most different landscape I've ever seen. It mm. just it looks otherworldly. Yeah, and I think you might want those three inch tires there too for some of that uh, black volcanic exactly. beaches <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, yep. I, I, somebody I know recently cycled in uh, Newfoundland and they said like Newfoundland was like mm. the closest thing they've seen to like Norway with the fjords and stuff and like just these epic views. And I was kind of surprised. I was like, yeah, I, I, I need to go there. All right. Yeah, well, Doozer, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. And I think uh, both of our uh, slogans kind of tie in together if we say get out there and keep on pedaling and they uh, just yeah. kind of go perfectly. I love it. I love it. <laughs> hopefully we'll uh we'll actually be able to uh, meet in person one day somewhere who knows when but uh it could happen so if you ever come to boulder burritos on me and if you come to ottawa well you know it's criminal city you're gonna you're gonna get taken down so um <laughs> don't yeah, come right. to ottawa no <laughs> all right man thank you, you so Canadians much are too nice. <laughs> uh it's not our fault all right man good to meet you good to catch up with you and uh bye-bye cheers Thank you so much, Ryan, for taking the time to be with us today and hope everybody out there enjoyed this podcast and getting to know more about Ryan and his background and how it all came to be.